Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, any New Hampshire voter can cast an absentee ballot now because of the corona crisis. But other New England election officials are not yet ready to sign off on mail-in voting. How are the Cape and the Islands preparing for the all-important summer season during the pandemic? And why is Rhode Island simultaneously seeing a spike in unemployment claims as well as an uptick in ID fraud? These stories and more in our Regional News Roundtable. Later in the show, why are many of our nation's farmers resorting to smashing eggs, dumping milk, and plowing under vegetables? Much of what I hear from farmers that I know and have talked to, that labor and expense is more expensive than the food in many instances. That it costs more sometimes to go out and, and pick a field of green beans than it does, you know, to just plow them back under as a loss. The long-term impact of our broken food supply chains. But first, joining me remotely, Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN. Hi, Arnie. Life in the time of a pandemic. How are you, Kelly? <laughs> yes, good to hear from you. Also with me, Ted Nisi, politics and business editor and investigative reporter for WPRI. Hello, Ted. Great to be with you, Callie. And I'm glad to have you. And Jeff Spillane, reporter for the Cape Cod Times. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you so much. Well, I'm going to start with you, Ted, because this Friday the numbers came out. 3.2 million more people filed for unemployment, making the total about 33 million Americans who are unemployed. That's a third. It's staggering to think about. And at the time where there are so many who will be applying for unemployment insurance now, you have a big scheme to report about in Rhode Island. Tell me about it. Yeah, Rhode Island has unfortunately been near the top of the list nationally for states with the most unemployment claims since this crisis started. As of earlier this week, more than 200,000 claims had been put in in Rhode Island. And this is a state with only about 500,000 people in the entire workforce. So it's a huge number of people. Um, But what we have learned just this week is that we seem to have in Rhode Island a significant problem with unemployment insurance fraud. Um, And we learned about this because we started hearing from people who were getting letters in the mail saying your benefits claim for unemployment has been approved. Here's how you certify and start collecting. And multiple people told us they would call their bosses and say, hey, you laid me off and you didn't even you know, have the heart to tell me I get this letter from unemployment. And their boss is like, what are you talking about? So it, it's a, it seems to be a somewhat significant problem. We were told earlier this week there were roughly 2,000 of the claims so far. There's been some claim of fraud. And of course, apart from it being you know fraud and the money being misused and an identity theft problem for people, we heard from at least one woman this week who really got caught in a problem because she has been now actually laid off. But someone had already oh. used her identity to file for unemployment. So she, she was saying, you know... How am I, you know, I need to figure out the fraud unemployment claim and get that sorted out and then get on unemployment as quickly as possible because now I'm out of work. Um, and of course, like in most states, the phone lines are clogged and everything else. So it just the situation's hard enough for people. And then you add, you know, bad actors on top of it. 
And Ted, you know, trying to untangle an identity fraud just without all of this other stuff is tough enough. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. uh, we've heard from many people about how hard that is, is just to get their own identity back once it's been, you know, claimed um, illegally. Yeah, exactly. They think that maybe the uh, connecting thread of these cases we're seeing in Rhode Island was that Experian huge data breach in, I think it was 2017 or thereabouts, Mm -hmm. um, that the, you know, the names and social security numbers of people involved in that one are still floating around on the, what they call the dark web, you know, on the internet. And now this is another example of how they're being used. So it's also, to me, frankly, it was a reminder that, you know, you hear about those huge data breaches in the news periodically and think, oh, that's terrible. But you don't necessarily think, wow, it could keep affecting people three, four years later. No kidding. Arnie, uh, what's going on in New Hampshire? Have you heard this? No, no, and that's what concerned me, because when I was reading your article, and they make the connection to the Equifax breach in 2017, but as they point out, that touched 150 million Americans, okay? So I'm thinking, how come I haven't heard this story in New Hampshire? How come I haven't heard this story in Maine? And I'm wondering whether, um, why was Rhode Island the target? Are we just not recognizing the numbers yet? I mean, this is really scary, everyone, because uh, I can't believe it's Rhode Island-specific, Ted. I just don't believe (laughs) it. Uh, And that's where I want to call my unemployment office and say, are you hearing this as well? Because I think all the 50 states' unemployment offices need to be uh, unaware of this issue, because if nothing else, the, the, the story about the woman finally actually losing her job and then applying for unemployment is a horror story. Yep. I mean, she's already frightened by this, and now she has to do double the work just to get the check because she's been laid off. And Jeff, I had heard prior to this story uh, that Ted put before us in, in Rhode Island that some people, now I don't know the numbers, were, were finding out that checks were being sent to dead people. Like the relatives of folks heard this, you know, reported this. I, I have heard that as well from several folks, including a state representative here on the Cape, um, who's originally from Texas, and he had just found out his his mother, who had passed away two years ago, got a deposit. Same thing for um, a colleague of mine who was a photographer at the Cape Cod Times. Both of his parents, who are deceased, got that deposit as well. So, I mean, this is, you know, and there are people waiting. There are still people right. waiting from the first application who have not gotten their checks. Mm-hmm. The other question we have in Rhode Island, because, Arnie, you make a good point about why would it just be this little state in the corner of New England with everybody else. But Rhode Island also has been, well, we thought better than most states at getting money out the door on unemployment, actually processing claims. There was a study out this week showing Rhode Island was close to tops, I think, in the country for, you know, the ratio of the number of claims coming in and getting payments and processing claims. And so there are some questions now were they working so hard to get the money out to people that maybe they didn't do as many fraud checks as they would otherwise? We don't know that, but that's now certainly something I think that's going to be looked at. No kidding. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, Ted, you have a twofer there with fraud because um, <laughs> you have a businessman who also decided to try to scam the CARES Act. And by the way, the guy also has a restaurant in Massachusetts. So, but Rhode Island is is uh, is uh, taking him to court. Uh, please explain. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh... You know, Rhode Island has been very proud. It's the number one state in the country for COVID-19 testing per capita. But now uh, when these stories broke very similar, we thought, are we going to be number one for fraud related to coronavirus, too, in Rhode Island, which would sort of not help our national image probably in the state. But 
Yeah, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, came down hard this week on a businessman and another person who they filed for uh, one of the programs set up through the CARES Act, this big stimulus bill to help employers keep their people on the workforce. And there were no employees and they were trying to trying to get that money. And, you know, they, they caught them, which is a good a good thing here. But I think, you know, it's just a reminder between the unemployment story we were just talking about and this to me that, you know, we almost can't fathom the amount of money coming out of Washington so fast right now. We're up to, you know, $3 trillion between the three coronavirus, three or four coronavirus bills so far. Inevitably, you're going to have people trying to get that who don't deserve it. So I think it is something probably all the states and all the law enforcement officials are going to have to be watching for in the coming months. This is very, very scary because we've all been reporting on companies that are hanging on by a thread waiting for this money. And this guy was about to get away with a whole bunch of money. I don't know how much more fraud is happening with some of these restaurants and businesses, but but I hope it's not a canary in the mine, I guess is what I'm thinking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me remotely are Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN, Ted Nisi, politics and business editor and investigative reporter for WPRI, and Jeff Spillane, reporter for the Cape Cod Times. We're discussing the latest news in the region you might have missed. All right, so to you, Jeff, you're a symbol, Cape Cod and the islands, of resort areas, summertime living that is about to be, it's a, it's a terrible scenario to consider that this is the time where you make all of your money in the summer and it's threatened now by this COVID-19 in huge ways. Before you say anything, let me play this clip from Julian Sear, the Massachusetts state senator who represents the Cape and the Islands, and he was speaking to CBS Boston last week. If the season's muted or, or if there's a delayed start or if even certain parts of it you know, don't happen, you don't really have a chance again to make an income for a whole, you know, whole nine months. Yeah. Uh, and so that's something that we're really concerned about. You know, we've managed COVID-19 quite pretty well. Um, and, and, and we don't want to see an uptick in cases uh, due to a population influx. All right. So, Jeff, uh, there's a task force because this is so important on reopening Cape Cod. Tell me about it. There is. And, and, and Julian's voice there, Senator Sear, he's been on my speed dial since this whole thing started. He's been terrific in trying to, uh, to honcho all of this. As you know, Memorial Day weekend is two weeks away here. Typically by now, this place would be humming with activity. We'd start to see businesses open. We'd see an uptick of people coming here. That, of course, isn't the case. Uh, and last week, the legislative delegation, led by uh, Senator Sear, issued some guidelines. There's a concern that we will start to see this uptick in summer population, primarily the seasonal residents, those who are coming here to work, coming to their second homes, or just visitors who are here for a, a longer stay. We may be seeing them a bit earlier this year because schools are physically closed, but remote learning is happening, and people are working from home. So they're saying, well, well let's head to the Cape now. And so they issued some guidelines through at least um, May 18th to any of these visitors. First and foremost, saying, you know, if it's not essential, you know, maybe you might want to think about staying home. And then if you do come here, especially from out of state, you must quarantine for 14 days. But part of the guideline that really created a bit of controversy was bring all your food, your supplies and prescriptions and cleaning materials, all of that. Just bring it with you. Get to where you're going and stay there. Uh, and, and that caused some concerns. 
And please don't come here if you're going to a hotel or a, a bread breakfast because they're closed. So those, those were issued last week. And then this week, they unveiled what they call the Cape Cod Reopening Task Force, which is led by the legislative delegation, the eight members we have here, as well as 20 other members representing the private and public sectors, healthcare here on the Cape, and municipalities. And it was created primarily, Cali, to develop strategies to have a structured approach to opening up the Cape when it's safe to do so, so that the 15 towns here there's not different rules and regulations. So if you're coming to the Cape, you don't have to get online to find out what, what do we need to do in Falmouth versus Barnstable. They want to have a consistent message, a consistent set of guidelines. And this is also the group that first and foremost is going to be the conduit to Governor Baker's reopening advisory board. They want to make sure that the unique interests here on the Cape and Islands are heard at the State House. Well, there's a tension that's been ongoing as long as I've been going to the islands um, that everybody knows about, which between the summer visitors and the all-year-round people anyway, <laughs> even though the the year-round people need the tourism dollars brought in by the seasonal visitors, the summer visitors. Oh, oh yes. So oh, this yeah. seems to me uh, to be particularly sensitive, all of these guidelines, how you open the comments to the people coming in. I have a friend from New York who has been in constant touch with me, and she's her question was, well, will they let people from out of state on the island? I mean, that was literally her question, because that's kind of the message that's gone out right now. Oh, yeah, that, that certainly is an issue, and there have been reports here. And, Ted, you all know about this covering Rhode Island with the <laughs> New York license plates coming in with the governor there, where there have been people with New York plates here have reported they've been harassed, and people have been coming here to ride out the, the pandemic. And it really has created some tension here. But once again, as you had mentioned, we must think these are, these are our guests. These are the visitors that sustain the economy and keep us going for 12 months out of the year. Well, Ted, that is true that you, you've been doing the same thing in Rhode Island in general. But Rhode Island also has quite a number of resort areas. So are there any kind of specifically targeted guidelines and plans such as is happening on the Cape, happening in Rhode Island? Well, I think I've, I've been watching what Jeff and his colleagues report at the Cape Cod Times and basically what they're thinking on the Cape, because there's a, there is such an echo between what you're hearing from folks on the Cape's tourism economy and in places like Newport and in South County, Rhode Island, Westerly, the places that, you know, summertime really, really in Rhode Island, the economy depends on that. The governor's already canceled the Newport Jazz Festival, canceled the Newport Folk Festival, said basically no large gatherings all summer long. You know, I think it's fair to say that there are businesses that are distraught because, as Jeff said, and as the state senator said, if you put off buying a washing machine because that the store was closed, that's probably something you'll buy once the store opens again. But you're not going to go back in November and have a summer vacation, right? That, that is lost to these companies and they only have a few months a year. So I think, frankly, the state is struggling to figure out exactly what it can do for these businesses. There is some talk about using, you know, all the states are getting this big influx of money from the CARES Act, the federal CARES Act. Rhode Island got $1.25 billion dollars. And it has to be used for things related to COVID-19. So there's certainly some talk and some push from the hospitality industry about setting up a relief fund or some kind of program like that. But more importantly, they would like to have guidance. You know, Rhode Island is set to start to reopen its economy on Saturday, very slowly, very small steps. And they're just hoping that enough opens up that there can still be some kind of summer tourism uh, season saved here. Mm. 
Arna, you wanted to say something? Yeah, really quickly. So you mentioned that people are being asked to quarantine for 14 days and that they're supposed to bring all their food and cleaning supplies and yada, yada. I just got to ask a question. You can deliver food to someone's front porch. You can deliver cleaning supplies. This is kind of a double hit on the Cape because if you could actually acquire those things there, then at least you'd be adding more money into the economy. But if you're telling me that I'm coming for 14 days and I got to stock up and bring everything with me, that's a lose-lose, and it's an unnecessary lose-lose, given the mm. fact that we know that we can actually supply those things to people and do it in a safe manner. So I'm just trying to figure out, are they going to revisit some of these ideas? Because I think that was foolish on so many levels. Yeah, I've, I've been told that they will take a look at this, um, depending upon how the governor here in Massachusetts changes those dates. But okay. I should mention that a similar set of guidelines was issued on the vineyard earlier last week, um, but they're a yeah. little bit stronger. Mm-hmm. And the the backlash was so intense from the community and the business wow. community on the island that the Chamber of Commerce and the hospital had to retract the guidelines that afternoon. They were a little bit stronger where they actually said, you are to get off the boat, go to where you're going, do not pass, go and collect $200, just get there and stay there for two weeks. Also, I should oh mention, God. Jeff, that there had been some reporting that the grocery stores were, as many of them are, kind of struggling just to provide for the people on the island. So the concern may have been part of this, uh, the underpinning of this guideline is that, wow, we don't have enough to you know, keep give, at this point anyway until some of these food supply chains get back up and running. You know. that, that's right. I know Kroning's market on the island had an issue where they were had to close a day or two a week. And I, my first job, Kelly, was at Reliable Market in Oak Bluffs. And I can uh, tell you, it's not a big store. No, so. it's not. Especially, it's especially very crowded, too. Yeah. <laughs> very yeah. crowded. Yeah. So that, that certainly was an issue. And I should mention that there are many, many, many events that are very traditional that have been canceled on the vineyard. So that's also giving, I think, people who would normally come pause as well. When I get there, what can I actually do? To to Arnie's point as well, right. you know. Right. Um, Arnie, while we're talking, I noted that in this Appalachian Mountain Club, it's a different kind of resort. Oh, yeah. But they've elected to close. And this seems to me from reading the piece that it's a double whammy because the employees were college students. And um, so they're out of a job. And then this place that service people going up the up to the mountains is gone as well. So the AMC runs these eight high huts. OK, it's a full system of high huts where you're on the top of a mountain and the huts are up there and they're about a one day travel from one hut to the next hut to the next hut. They have closed them permanently for the 2020 year. And that's because you can't service them. I mean, they're so high up. They're away from a road. If anything should happen, um, it's just so precarious because of COVID. What they did do initially was the AMC, the Appalachian Mountain Club, closed everything in mid-March. Then they decided, what kind of reopening are we going to do? The only reopening they're going to do really on July 1st are they have a, a like a, a Pinkerton Notch Visitor Center and a Highland Center at Crawford Notch. Both of them are slated to open on July 1, but in part because they're close to a road. You know, they're, they're, they're accessible, so if anything should happen, you could, they're, they're elastic. The high hut system, however, is not. They're going to lose millions of dollars. Um, they're going to lose lots of employees, as you mentioned, a lot of the college students who basically live their lives for the summer when they get to be up at that high hut and sort of take care of all these visitors. 
But it just shows, again, what a challenge this is on every level. You imagine when you're sort of hiking in the mountains that you're all by yourself. No, you're not. You know, and especially in the White Mountains, you get up to those high huts and it's almost a traffic jam sometimes. <laughs> so I think people are now beginning to understand not only how vulnerable we are, but there are so few options where you can social distance safely, where you can access healthcare if you need it, and where you can get the kind of support system in place. And it turns out that uh, the AMC is distraught, but they have no choice, and they will reevaluate for 2021. But right now, this was an incredibly difficult decision, uh, and yet one that they have to do in the interest of the people that they both hire, as well as the hikers that may not know what they will confront once they get there. Yeah, that's bad. Let me circle back to you, Jeff, with regard to one other potential big blow to the economy in general and also specific to the Cape and the Islands or the Steamship Authority. The Steamship Authority is the main mode of travel, of certainly for summer visitors, but for people who live on the island, it had a lot of problems last summer, which I've reported on many times. Well, now, as it is happening in many other places, particularly here in Boston, uh, people are just not on public transportation of any sort. So the the woes have gotten worse. The financial woes have gotten worse, as has happened with the Steamship Authority. And they're in bad straits. Here's a clip from Sean Driscoll, who's the communications director for the Steamship Authority. He was talking about concerns for the ferry operations on NECN last week. We were having sort of a robust start of the year, and then mid-March, things fell off a cliff. We do have serious concerns right now, and we're looking, you know, at a lot of different avenues to help uh, on that front as far as the finances go. The big worry and the big question is when is this going to end and when will things change? Well, everybody would like to have the answer to that. But what they'd like to have happen, Jeff, is uh, for the governor to kick in some funds. But they're kind of a weird agency, so they're not immediately eligible to to get those funds. Yeah, it is. It's a strange setup. It's a quasi-public agency. And as you had mentioned, it is a lifeline to the islands, only year-round servicing, only carry a vehicle and freight. And when they saw that their uh, ridership was down 85%, they saw their bank account going down as well and had to to furlough some employees. So they did send a letter to Governor Baker saying, hey, we need your help. We have this reduction in traffic. We're losing $1 million per week. We may not be able to continue service to the islands after the end of May. And I think that's – and people were like – Wow, really? You know, you think of it as being flush with cash. And the the governor, it did take him a while. I believe the first time he responded to that was during one of his daily press briefings. I believe the State House News Service asked about it. And he said, well, you know, um, that, that really, that responsibility should fall to the feds, which left a lot of people scratching their heads because this is an organization that was founded under state charter by the the state legislature in 1960. But it is different. It's different than other public transit operations. Typically does not get funds from the state. It's cash box dependent. So there's been a lot of questions as to who who actually should be helping out the Steamship Authority here. And at least in the short term, they are receiving some CARES Act money along the lines of about $9 million. And Congressman Keating went to bat for them. So they're going to get it a little sooner than they, they would have. That gives them a little bit of breathing room through the end of July. And then and after, after that, right we now, don't know. Yeah. After that, right now, I know that they are in the midst of exploring a $10 million credit line, which would get it through the summer. But very frightening to hear something like that. Yeah, but you want to talk about a lot of summer visitors really stuck on that island if mm-hmm. they can't get off because the ferry <laughs> shuts down in July. There you have it. That's not going to be pretty. Well, um, it's just a reminder, too, of how 
this crisis spins off so many other crises and and raises questions we never had before. I mean, I don't think anyone had ever thought, what do we do if traffic on the Steamship Authority in the summer goes yeah. down 85 or 90%? I mean, the idea that there would be almost no one going to, for years, the people on the islands wished maybe tourism would be slightly less to, or at least spread out differently, but nobody ever would have imagined we'd be talking in May about you know, an 85% reduction in traffic. So there's no plan for it. So let me just say something for Char- in support of Charlie Baker, and that is you have a limited number of funds. You're triaging your dollars. Mm-hmm. You've never been responsible for right. this. Let's remember this. So there's no history of support. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a line item there. So now all of a sudden, and, and I'll be, I'm going to be a little bit of a snob here. I'm going to say, when you think of the Cape and Martha's Vineyard, uh, it's not the people that are living there that you have to think of. You think about the very affluent people that are going there. That is a very much of a touristy area. And if you have limited dollars, do you put it into this? I mean, that's a, I, I feel so mm-hmm. bad for Charlie Baker and I feel bad for the steamship line, but I am going to tell you right now, um, they may have to go after that credit line because I'm not sure that, that Charlie can at least convince people that it makes sense to cut a check for this when everybody else has their hand out and they have historically been supported by the state. Well, first of all, much better reporting has been done than by me to say that the constant myth of how much wealth is there is just that. There's, there's, there are more regular yeah. folk who depend on a living there than you would think. So that's one thing. The second thing is for the wealthy folk that do come and drop tons of money, it is a driver for the entire yeah. Massachusetts economy. So they're not wrong to ask, but I yeah. hear you when yeah. you say, you. well, you just weren't here before and I got some other issues to that. That's right, too. Well, not to mention, <laughs> it quickly switches from, you know, ooh, how many tourists can we get there to just is enough food, medicine, exactly. and basic supplies right. getting to the right. Cape. Right. Same That's thing with right. Block Island here in Rhode Island. You know, the Block Island Ferry, will it be able to keep running? Yes, you know, some people want to go to Block Island still for a party or whatever, but you also just need to make sure the human beings who live there, they're still residents of Rhode Island and the Cape and Islands, the island residents are still residents of Massachusetts. You've got to make sure they still have a lifeline. That's right. Let me do a hard turn here in conversation because speaking of impacts from COVID-19 that we we sort of have been talking about, but not really. And that's the whole voting situation and the politics in general that's gotten sort of pushed over to the side as we rightly uh, focus on some of the health concerns. But I'm interested, Arnie, in the fact that at least in New Hampshire, Uh, New Hampshire voters can cast an absentee ballot. This has been debated and continues to be debated in many states, but they can because of COVID-19. So that's a big step, right? Well, it it is a big step. But let me let me say again, I do a lot of work in Texas. So I just want to make a point here, everyone. So my Republican governor, Chris Sununu, has said for the purposes of this election, we're going to consider COVID-19 a quote unquote disability. And therefore, because we have very restrictive absentee balloting, we will let you vote absentee, maybe even register in an absentee way, which means you don't have to do it in person because we're going to consider COVID-19 a disability. You don't need a doctor's script saying you're disabled, but we're going to sort of generically say your fear of you know, getting COVID-19, we'll consider that a disability. In Texas, the attorney general just said, no, it's not a disability. So isn't this unbelievable? It turns out that depending on where you land, your fear of of contracting COVID-19 is being interpreted totally differently. But what's so frightening is that interpretation now relates to the franchise. And that's why I want everyone to begin to think about this, Mm -hmm. because I think we need to have some kind of a 50-state discussion about this 
because it shouldn't be an accident of geography whether you're perceived as disabled or not because of your fear of COVID-19. And in the state of Vermont, there's also an interesting issue going on right now because um, they're they're probably going to have sort of regular voting going into the primary, but the Democratic Secretary of State wants mail-in voting for the November election. The Republican governor says, well, let's wait before we decide. And the Secretary of State's going, if we wait, I can't get all the paperwork done. I can't get the mail-in voting ready. So again, what's so interesting is, is waiting an answer, given the nature of this pandemic and given the nature of the fact that we're being told it may come roaring back in the fall, a lot of decisions have to be made mm-hmm. now. And I think that's part of the problem, too, is a lot of people want to push it off, but they can't because something like a mail-in voting situation is going to require a lot of early effort mm-hmm. and getting those votes to those people. And it's it's just so confusing. But I think the idea yeah. of the disability and COVID-19, I think the Brennan Center or Harvard Law School or somebody better look into this because it should not be interpreted based on the partisanship or the relationship of the governor to whatever outcome they want. If it is a disability, then let's do it across the board. Well, Ted, the, the problem is, of course, that this is being totally cast in a in a partisan and a political way. I mean, that's the whole that, that's that's the bottom line here. Yeah, I mean, you see it in Massachusetts with Congressman Kennedy is leading the push for universal mail-in voting. And some folks are going, well, that's just because it'll help him in the primary against Senator Markey uh, if more people have a ballot land in their mailbox. Um, So I think a rule of thumb I've always had is politicians who won under the current system don't like to change the current system. And so you hear a lot of nervousness uh, in Rhode Island and Massachusetts about changing the rules of the game. And I'm sure it's the same in New Hampshire. But you clearly have to have plans in place for a very different election. Rhode Island moved its presidential primary to June 2nd, and there were 85,000 applications for mail ballots put in so far as of the other night. And the vice chair of the Board of Elections said, you know, we're not equipped to handle if you extrapolate that to the general election in November. You know, we don't have the systems in place to handle that level of mail ballots, processing them, getting them out, et cetera. And exactly. so the state needs a plan and not to wait until, you know, the night of the election or a few days before and realize, uh oh, we're not ready to handle this. Well, Jeff, Tom Galvin, who is our secretary of state, just proposed expanding voting by mail in Massachusetts. And his proposal would make it possible for the September 1st primary and the November 3rd general election. But you're looking at a special state Senate election happening on May 19th. That's being a test case. Yeah, we're seeing this play out in real time. This is a special election. The state senator for the Barnesville Employment District vacated the seat late last year. The election's already been moved. It was originally scheduled for March 31st, obviously due to the pandemic. And similar to New Hampshire um, and other states, you do not have to have an excuse to cast an absentee early ballot. So while the town clerks here are saying, yeah, it's great, we're seeing a nice response, in some cases, 2,000, 4 or 5,000, some, some fairly small towns, they're saying this is absurdly labor-intensive. There are so many steps to process each and every vote. And, and they're, they're actually looking forward with so much angst toward, toward September and November, saying if this continues, and unless there's a systemic overhaul, I don't know how we're going to be able to do this when we're going to see you know, upwards of 80 to 90 percent turnout for a presidential election. And also, we, nobody's talked about the cost, Jeff. Did your people talk about the cost as well? 
they have not as of yet, and that's another issue because, you know, in, in many of these town halls, they're closed. They can't only have so many people in there helping out. They think they're going to make be able to make it through here. I should also mention the town of Plymouth voted, their board of selectmen voted Tuesday night to send a letter to Senate President Karen Spilka saying, we really need you to move this election for another month. First and foremost, we don't think it's safe. If you take a look at what happened in Wisconsin, we don't want that to happen here where people are waiting in line. And it's my understanding if they don't hear something back, there may be a lawsuit later this week or early next week. Um, but they, they do have to open up the polls, and there are you know, so many precautions that need to be taken. And you know, they're, they're just hoping that they can maybe push this off another month. But unfortunately, whoever the new senator will be, if they are voted in in June, if this does get postponed, they need to run again in September. Yeah, and just to be clear, you have to open up the physical polls in addition to mail-in voting. So therein lies part of the cost, too. So go ahead, Arnie. Well, I, actually, and that's my point. My point is now we have the worst of everything. We have expanded absentee, for example, in the state of New Hampshire, where it used to be restricted. But now because of COVID, everyone's going to basically claim maybe that they want to vote absentee. But that still means you have to have the polling places prepared on Election Day because people can still exercise mm-hmm. the franchise in person. Can, let's, can we have a come-to-Jesus moment here? How many people that work at these polling places are elderly, are, you know, have underlying health conditions? They're volunteers. So the most vulnerable people are going to be at the polling places to collect the ballots of people who decide to actually show up in person, on top of which mm-hmm. they're going to have this right. expanded absentee, which is going to add another number. This is not the time to have so many choices. Can I just remind everyone? If these choices are both exhausting financially, but they're also going to be harmful to the health and safety of whatever the poll workers are, plus the people that vote, which is one of the reasons why it should not be partisan that the reason why you want a generic mail-in voting for everyone is that then everyone's on the same playing field. We all know how to prepare together, and nobody is felt feeling more vulnerable than somebody else as a result of having all these options at a time where options probably are not the best for the kind of outcomes you're looking for. Right. And you know, that that's right. So many of the poll workers are right in that demographic that is in so much danger. And that is showing up with these towns. They're not, they're having maybe 50% of their workers. And I do know that the uh, Secretary of State here in Massachusetts has offered to provide workers to come and help out at the polls as well. Mm. All right. I have a few mm. seconds here, Ted Nisi, and I would love for you to tell me why we need to be paying attention to this fourth district race in Massachusetts that nobody's paying <laughs> attention to right now. And there are 12 candidates. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, so if you think of the market for television in, in where I live is Rhode Island plus Bristol County, Massachusetts, and Congressman Kennedy, of course, running for Senate, he represents a big swath of our Massachusetts viewers. And so with him moving on, there's a race for his U.S. House seat. But these candidates are just getting no attention. You know, maybe no is too strong, but not much. And there are so many of them. Uh, it reminds me a little of the race that Representative Tran won up uh, out of Lowell a couple of years ago where there were so many people running. You've got roughly 12 Democrats right now all trying to get onto the September 1st primary ballot. They're trying to get a Republican candidate for November too. And, you know, the, the thing is, we know historically that once someone wins one of these seats, whether it's in Rhode Island or Massachusetts, any of these deep blue states, they're almost certain to keep it forever, other than an occasional example like Mike Capuano, who, who goes down. And so it's really important, you know, who is picked for it during this election. But, you know, these candidates, they're stuck in their houses doing Zoom calls with the local Democratic committees. It's unclear what the debate situation will be. You know, it's really scrambled for them how to get attention. And so 
you know, I'm just trying to make sure I keep reminding people who live in, you know, in the Attleboro's, up into Newton, Brookline, Taunton, down to Fall River. You know, you do have to pick a new congressperson this year. And, uh, you know, you'll, you'll have to pay some attention to that this summer. But it's, you know, it just it, it's hard enough to get attention when you're not the most high profile race in the ballot. But it's just exponentially harder right now when you talk to these campaigns. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you all for joining me today. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Arnie Arneson is the host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN. Ted Nisi is the politics and business editor and investigative reporter for WPRI. And Jeff Spillane is a reporter for the Cape Cod Times. Coming up, why are so many Americans waiting hours in line at food pantries while farmers are forced to destroy food? A local grocer and a supply chain food expert breaks it down. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyep. That's Creole for something extra. Smashed eggs, dumped milk, and plowed under vegetables. That's what many of our nation's farmers have had to resort to after losing business from closed restaurants and hotels during the coronavirus pandemic. This unprecedented food waste comes at a time when more people than ever are in need of food. Why are people having to wait hours in line at food pantries while farmers are forced to destroy food? Part of the answer has to do with our broken food supply chains, which get farmers' crops to grocery stores and restaurants. Joining me remotely, Doug Rao, founder and president of Daily Table, a nonprofit grocery store chain, and former president of Trader Joe's. Welcome, Doug. Great to be here, Kelly. And also with me, Dr. Arzum Akas, assistant professor at Boston University's Questrom School of Business and a food supply chain expert. Hi, Arzum. Hi, Kelly. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to have both of you because this is quite puzzling. We should say that uh, most recently, Tyson Foods, one of the United States' biggest meat processors, took out a full-page ad in the New York Times in which they warned that the food supply chain is breaking and warned that farmers were going to be wasting a lot of food that should, of course, be going to people. Let's take a listen to this clip from Inside Edition that features farmers speaking about food waste. We've been dumping. We've probably given away... 500 gallons of milk so far to the public because legally we can't sell raw milk, but we can give it away. So anything we can do to help our community. There's no turning the cows off to get up every morning knowing you're going to lose money and have to work just as hard as you did the day before. Professor Arzum Akas, the twin supply chains of one chain going to restaurants and one going to grocery stores, how is it possible for them to be broken at this point and so quickly? The answer is uh, specialization. We have dual supply chains because of package sizes. Restaurants receive items in box sizes, like cheese in 10-pound bags, for instance, while we consumers get them in 8-ounce bags. They get maybe sugar or flour in 40-pound bags. Uh, We get them in much smaller sizes. And we have dedicated facilities and machinery and equipment focusing on these different types of package sizes. So when uh, orders are dried up from the restaurant side, the, the same machines cannot be utilized overnight 
to start producing in smaller package sizes. So that's the reason why we are seeing this waste because these facilities also stop ordering from suppliers and farmers are left with uh, extra products that they don't have anywhere to send to. So, Professor, I guess this has never happened before, not even on a small scale, because it appears from the outside that nobody could ever anticipate this. They just seem to be totally surprised along the way. That's right. And I feel like we became the victim of our efficiency. In the absence of a disaster like this, the food supply chain was perfect in the sense that it was generating output at the least cost possible for us. But that also means that it's not resilient. For instance, mm. if you were to have equipment that can that is capable of producing both package sizes, that means that that equipment will be slower, which means less efficient and more expensive, right? So this is what's mm. going on basically. We don't have the flexibility. That's why we have the disruption. But it was it was very good in terms of cost. Got it. Doug Rao, now at one point you were president of Trader Joe's. That's a big grocery chain. Now you're at a not-for-profit grocery. I want to know first, what's it been like for the Daily Table to be in the middle of this food supply breakdown? Well, it's uh, like most retailers. Uh, We had several weeks of record sales, record customer counts, um, when people were worried and coming in and buying everything they could possibly get their hands on. We had a number of uh, supply chain breakdowns where, you know, particularly dry grocery, it's interesting that the part of the store that usually you can count on getting product, which is the center of the store, as it's often called, you know, dry goods became the problem. So whether it's dry beans, Mm. canned food, uh, these suddenly became very high demand items. And these are things which, generally speaking, don't do high velocity in the average grocery retailer, including Daily Table. So in the first couple of weeks, we also had tremendous amounts of food that we recovered from the supply chain, from restaurants, from wholesalers that had product for the restaurant chain that were highly perishable, uh, milk and fresh fish and produce and things. And then as the weeks went by, that more or less moved over into things that were a little longer codes like dressings and yogurt and processed foods. I'd say that, you know, for the last three weeks, this has been pretty common across the retail chain where most grocers have very noticeable, significant drops in customer accounts. But mm-hmm. each customer is buying a lot more, so the average transaction is significantly higher. So, Doug Rao, let's explain to people how your grocery works, because you mentioned that you were actually the beneficiary right off, and then things changed because you're a grocer, but you're a little bit different in, the, in your approach. Daily Table is different. Our nonprofit is designed to bring affordable nutrition to economically challenged to food insecure communities where people are struggling to afford what they should be eating. In normal conditions, which we're not in right now, normal conditions, hunger in America isn't a shortage of calories, it's a shortage of nutrients. And hence, you know, the phrase has often been used that obesity is the face of hunger in America. Sadly, in the last month, that is no longer the case. And indeed, there are, as we know, people that are truly just in need of something to eat. So uh, traditionally, we're a grocer. We actually are, we regard ourselves as a hunger relief sort of healthcare initiative masquerading as a corner food market. We only carry about 700 items, produce and, you know, dry grocery and, you know, eggs and milk and things. And then we have a kitchen commissary where we produce 40, 50 items usually, all that meet good, sound nutrition that are then grab and go, that are less expensive than um, the fast food options in the neighborhood. And we do about 
About a million servings a month out into the community. So that's what I meant by you could benefit initially because some of those restaurants that were closing or didn't know what to do with some of that food, the way it was packaged, uh, not efficiently or maybe too efficiently, as, as the professor said, was an advantage for you. But then now nobody can get anything. And so there are we're looking at the pictures of those farmers just dumping stuff. And here we are on the other end of it, not able to get it. Um, Professor, it seems to me that the weakest link in this is just the distribution piece. So that is it possible that this whole thing like weighs on the truckers? Like you can't get from the farmers to the places that could use this? I think the weakest link is the processing plants. So when you have these big package sizes, the ones that are meant for restaurants, they don't have the barcodes on them. They don't have the nutritional labels that the FDA requires. So you cannot really sell them and process them at retail stores. So when these facilities are not operating, they're not ordering from the suppliers. That's why we have inventory accumulating on the farm side. But I heard that there are problems on the distribution side too, uh, because now we have huge demand surge at, on the grocery channel. And they are working around the clock, full capacity, the manufacturing companies. Now they, the bottleneck in their chain becomes distribution. So yeah, in their supply chain, the weakest link is distribution, drivers, people who are going to load the trucks. But for the restaurant side, basically, we have all these processing facilities there that are idle, and it's causing a backlog of inventory on the, re- on the farm side. So, Doug, if some of the products were broken down, maybe you could even take them big, you know, uh, in bulk size and break them down for your particular needs at Daily Table, but you just can't get past that processing piece that the professor was talking about. Yeah, I think it's definitely true. We, we are a little unusual because we have a kitchen commissary that we can take product in in bulk and convert it. And we're relatively small, so we can't possibly handle the volumes that we've heard about in the news with millions of pounds of this or, you know, thousands of gallons a day of stuff. But we have been taking product like that, we, and we have uh, been able to convert that. We also do have the ability to take in, you know, 40, 50-pound bags of things and uh, pack that up into one pound, you know, in the store. Uh, but I do think that what is, is the important point here is that there are, in essence, two different models in a way that have both become very efficient. One of the things we don't talk about, for instance, is that grocers often contract for their foods. They are, they'll actually have a contract for, you know, whatever the product is. And suddenly, if now the restaurant you know, industry closes and there's this large supply, they can't necessarily just pivot because they're, they're sometimes contractually bound to take product Mm. from their existing sources. So that's one challenge that we haven't mentioned. The other one is truly the last mile challenge. And I do think that all the processing plants are a problem. Uh, Much of what I hear from farmers that I I know and have talked to, that labor and expense is more expensive than the food in many instances. That it costs more sometimes to go out and, and pick a field of green beans than it does, you know, to just plow them back under as a loss. And what we have is the problem that there's not access to that if you could get the product picked, getting it to transported to where there's a customer who can take it is not a light switch you can turn on. These are relationships you build up. There's costing, there's contracting. It's, it's something that happened very fast, caught everybody unaware. And obviously, if they had known this was coming for weeks or months, a lot of pivoting would have gone on. And a lot of this would have been saved. I'm looking at the same time at all the people who need the food. It's just, it feels disgusting to me. Heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And the sad thing is that, that food's a precious resource. We put tremendous resources, a lot of carbon footprint, a lot of water. Exactly. I mean, something like 19% of all the potable water in America goes into food that goes to waste. And that was under best of times. 
Even under normal times, the amount of food that goes to waste runs around a third of everything produced. Wow. So right now, it's just staggeringly inefficient and very sad. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. My guests are Doug Rao, founder and president of Daily Table, a nonprofit grocery store chain, and Dr. Arzim Akas, assistant professor at Boston University's Questrom School of Business and a food supply chain expert. And we're discussing food waste during the COVID-19 crisis. All right. Now, one of the reasons that Tyson Foods put out this big ad in New York Times is because they wanted to keep their processing plants open. And now the president, he's using the Defense Act to say, you have to stay open, you processing plants, particularly the meat ones, and continue to produce and, you know, keep the distribution somehow going. And to your point, Doug Rao, I guess they made the calculation that the employees maybe, even though they cost more, they're not as concerned, they, it seems to be, because the employees are very upset that there has not been enough attention paid to their safety. And a lot of people have died in these plants, which is why some of them were shut down to begin with. So here we are. He didn't use the Defense Act to uh, make factories produce masks for nurses, but he is for the food chain. Is this particular piece of the food chain, the meat part of it, I guess, so very vital to just keeping the wheels greased? I think it is vital, uh, but I don't think that the current approach is the ideal approach because it is very much it very much focuses on the liability uh, issue of the companies in case you know somebody dies and their family sues the company. So maybe for with this executive order, they are not obligated to pay this money. So it it fixes this problem, but it does not fix the. Uh, problem at the at the high level, which is that we, we're going to have labor shortages. And mm-hmm. I think there is only one way to uh, mitigate this problem, which is the, these companies need to change that they are doing their operations right now. Like the, the, the key part is about product variety. So we walk into a store and we get like 10 different types of cuts for chicken. You can find chicken wings, thighs, breasts, like you name it. And it takes a lot of time and resources to produce these cuts. For, for a chicken uh, plant, the solution is easy. We'll just buy one chicken from, from the store, right? So that mm-hmm. requires a lot less labor. And you can implement social distancing at the plant, which is the very core reason why we're having this problem right now. They are very much packed in one facility. There are 3,000 people working on under one roof, which is very crowded. But the problem is more complicated. Like for chicken, it's easier, right? Chicken is small enough to sell in like one size. But for cows and for pigs, I guess you, you just need to figure out a way to cut the animal in a way where you're gonna oh, right. produce two yeah. types of cuts as opposed to like 15. And this is not an easy thing to figure out. So you need to figure out a new way, a new design of operations that's going to allow you to operate with less people and more output and significantly less variety. Um, So so this, this is what I would do if I was one of these companies. I would take one location and pilot it. Uh, Because currently they're spending all their efforts on deep cleaning and they're buying protective shields between employees. It's and they're checking the temperatures as they walk in the building. Clearly, it's not working out, right? That's why right. they closed it. Exactly. They need to try something different, fundamentally different. Well, Doug Rao, I'm not even sure they're doing all of that, but go ahead. <laughs> not to act cynical in any way, but if you look at where these plants are located, it feels very political to me. Second is meat is is important in our bodies, but for most adults, most of it, it's not essential. 
And there are a growing number of vegetarians and vegans in the United States that can demonstrate that, that at a time when food is so, you know, is, is critical to put an emergency act on processing plants for meat feels a, a bit odd, particularly given all the challenges that are involved with that. You know, the key really is there, getting your arms on flattening the curve, you know, through testing, through, you know, regular testing and, you know, all the other safe practices you can do in a plant. But... When you, when you start to designate that only a certain part of the food system is essential and demanding people come back, part of the problem is for many, many of these, if you don't have the other part of the system, the demand side, where people can go and get the product of, in restaurants, et cetera, up and going, to some degree, it's a bit tricky. Right. It, it's one that can create all sorts of inefficiencies. Well, let me ask this, which is there has been over the last few years a real push for farm to table. I want to know where my food came from. I want to go local. I want to try to get rid of the carbon footprint. So I'm I'm not looking for those products that are packaged 15 different ways and come from far away. I've been looking locally. And right now in this moment, there are a gathering of farmers where people are pulling together farmers locally and saying, okay, consumers, come here so that they won't lose all of their, you know, product at this point because they can't get them processed and they can't go through the typical food supply chains. Wonder what both of you think about that. I think that there's been a trend for a long time towards local. There are a lot of things that are driving that. I think right now there is, of course, desperation, which is I've got product. How do I make sure that it gets, you know, utilized and, and that I don't lose my customer base? And I think that, you know, you've got things like Boston Public Market, Right here, right. which deals with a lot of local and a lot of vendors. And they are, because the market itself is closed, they're using Mercado as a delivery service for doorstep delivery. I do think it's a very small part of the food industry, obviously. This is not in any way going to really save a significant number of jobs or replace a large part of food. But what it is going to do, hopefully, is it's going to allow for the very important initiative of trying to get more food locally produced having fewer food miles on what we eat here in New England, that it'll keep the heartbeat going on the advances that have been made. Okay. Uh, Professor? I'm hugely in favor of these networks. And the main reason is for risk management point of view. We have two parallel supply networks for companies that focus on pure efficiency and economies of scale, like Cargill, Tyson, uh, JBS, and Smithfield. And we have these local farmers networks. If you look at the four big guys, their, their operations are very much consolidated. That means that it's more risky from supply chain management perspective. So if there is, there's a problem mm. there, you have a huge impact for the entire network. But compare this with a local farmer network, Right. So the average farmer there, their scale is much less. Maybe um, compared to an industrial farm, they maybe have like one tenth of the animals. OK. And then they send it to a local slaughterhouse as opposed to a gigantic <laughs> meat processing facility with 3000 people. Let's say if like there is an outbreak in that slaughterhouse. What's going to happen for all of us? It's going to have very little impact. So, But it sounds like you like it. Though. I love it. Exactly. Because if anything happens at one farmer, at one slaughterhouse, the, the impact is minimal, negligible. So for that reason, it is less risky to operate these networks. What do we learn from this? For a retailer, I think it means that for everybody, not put all your eggs in one basket. 
So for a retailer, Literally. it may yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, for yeah. for a retailer it may mean this. I need to diversify my suppliers. Like maybe go buy more local so that you start supporting these guys. If something happens with the big guys, I'm gonna keep getting meat. Uh, even for Tyson or big guys, they can consider doing little bit of deconsolidation so that they are spreading the risk among different different facilities. And and you know what we either are going to come out of this with different values uh, because up until now the value of just pricing for instance on meat has often for many people uh, driven a buying decision whereas all of the the really good points have been raised around local I think has been a subcurrent but will grow to be larger and it'll be a question as we come out of this are we going to value you know, that stability and resiliency that uh, that offers. Nature survives best when it has diversity. I think that when you've got local supply chains across America, you have much more resiliency in a food system, but sometimes you pay more for it. So therefore, you have a dynamic tension between those two. And the question will be, which one do we value? All right. One last question. Will this get worse before it gets better or will it be better pretty soon? I, I don't know. It's hard to say. It depends on like what precautions we are taking. It's just like, you know, we ask Dr. Fauci, hey, Dr. Fauci, how many people are going to die? Is it going to get better or worse? And he's going to mm-hmm. say it depends on our social distancing measures. It, it, okay. like, so the answer is the same for uh, food supply chain. All right. Doug Rao? On one hand, we have the problem of the virus. And that's a very specific problem that we're talking about here about physical distancing and all these other things. On the other hand, you got the problem of economic disaster for many industries. That could have long-term effects on the business that could take out whole segments uh, for a period of time. I hope that doesn't happen. I hope we're able to rebound quickly. But I think it's going to be a long time till we see unemployment below 3% in Boston again. And I think that the food industry as such nationwide is taking a blow. And it's going to take a while to recover you know, it all depends. Are we going to get a rebound in the fall? Are people going to trust the system to come back into restaurants, to come back, you know, and shop as they did before? Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there. I thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Doug Rao is the founder and president of Daily Table, a nonprofit grocery store chain, and former president of Trader Joe's. Dr. Arzum Akas is an assistant professor at Boston University's Questrom School of Business and a food supply chain expert. That's it for this week's show. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. We're on the web at WGBH.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.